Blog Talk Radio. I'm not here to gloat. I'm just here to 
appreciate what we witnessed. What I kind of talked about before the final started actually came to pass. LeBron got mad. The Warriors poked the bear. We talked about this last week with LeBron taking uh, – Take, you know, was a little upset about the, the word that Draymond Green used uh, with him before uh, Draymond was ejected uh, from the game and uh, game four. And you and I both agreed if you played basketball, you've heard that word, you've used that word, not that big a deal. And at the time, I thought that the Warriors went a little overboard with their kind of mocking of LeBron. And they challenged him, and he answered with back-to-back 41-point games and a triple-double in Game 7. What I thought going into the finals, LeBron for the last year has heard about Steph Curry. And Steph Curry is the next great thing, Steph Curry this, Steph Curry that. And we talked about how we have seen MVP caliber players lose an MVP award or someone else wins it, and then they take it out on them in the finals or in the playoffs. The the most vivid representation to me is – your man, Akeem Olajuwon, over David Robinson in 1995, where he just obliterated him and then proceeded to obliterate Shaq in the finals. I mean, it, that's the, the biggest, uh, most glaring example, and that's what happened. There's a great YouTube video of all six of LeBron's blocks on Stephen Curry in the finals. And Four of them are just – he's got that sneer. You know, game six was the one that he, he was, he was kind of talking to him a little bit. I like that they, they don't seem to be particularly best friends. We had lost that. You remember when you and I were growing up, Lakers, Celtics, Celtics, Pistons, and then the Bulls and, and uh, you know, the Sixers. There was an edge to it because you could tell they didn't like each other. And I think we lost a little bit of that, but LeBron brought it back. Two of the best players in the league in the finals really don't care for each other. And I think that's okay. You don't have to be buddy-buddy. But the way he was just so dismissive of Curry, uh, that's what made it something to see. So LeBron with the back-to-back 41-point games, which was fantastic. But then game seven, the play that I know will will be on that ESPN loop forever and ever was the block, the rundown of Andre Iguodala. And and you can put all the whatever on to it, you know, uh, Iguodala obviously hurting, not being able to get up as high. But watching LeBron close and block it, Number one, he did it. Number two, how he did it, how emphatic it was. And that was 
the Warriors' last great shot at the basket. Because after that, you know, they had some deep heaves that weren't exactly online. But that was it. He emphatically shut the door. And, and that will be the play that, uh, that for me, that's the takeaway from this finals. This is that Jordan shot over Elo, Magic's baby hook. This is that moment that LeBron now has. Uh, and it was fantastic to watch. It really was. My buddy and I, uh, Tony, we were all down in Charlotte, and we were talking about it after it was over. Um, with the way Iguodala went up, even if he had tried to reverse it, <laughs> it, it looked like LeBron would have gotten it with the left hand. Just the angle LeBron took, kind of straight at the rim, but not, you know, to where he would decapitate, decapitate himself and, you know, take his head off. He, you know, of course, crushed it because uh, Iguodala went up, you know, on the you know front side of the rim. Had he tried to sneak and reverse it, I still believe LeBron would have been able to get that as well. It wouldn't have been maybe as nasty. I believe he could have got a finger on it and still deflected it either way. I think Iguodala was just kind of screwed. Well, and, and this is something that Kentucky fans know well. He could have come from an angle and swatted that ball into the stands. He could have. But he made the play to keep the ball in play for his team. Because at that time and score – the ball in play don't let Golden State inbound it. it that's that's what you want to do that's the kind of block you want to make is to take away the possession from the other team uh, now I'm here to eat a little bit of crow even though I did predict the Cavaliers Kyrie Irving showed me a lot especially over the last three games last four games really I still say he's not a point guard but when the spotlight was bright, he came to play. And we, we know that LeBron, when he was in Miami, had Dwayne Wade to kind of be the Robin to his Batman. And there was a lot of questions up until came two and three, could Kyrie be that guy? And he was. I mean, absolutely he was. He was the better player than Curry was for that series. And he did enough defensively. I mean, I'm not going to say he's an all-defensive player, don't get me wrong, but he did enough uh, with what the Cavs were doing defensively to frustrate Curry, to frustrate Klay Thompson into a lot of bad and awkward shots. And uh, so I tipped my hat to him. Just phenomenal. And for the game to end on the the championship to come down to – Kyrie Irving putting Steph Curry on skates, as the young kids like to say, stepping back and hitting that three, something Steph has been doing for two years to everybody else, is the uh, – that's, that's, that's just something. And for Kevin Love, the much maligned Kevin Love, to rebound like he did in game seven and play pretty good defense on Steph Curry – on that last possession, I mean, that's the LeBron block, the Kyrie three, and Love's defense, 
that's your big three, and that's why the Cavaliers are the champions. Yeah, and, you know, Kyrie averaged more than any other LeBron teammate in a finals as far as being Robin to LeBron's Batman. So, like you said, you he he kind of got it together, uh, and and surprised a lot of people. You know, considering how the first two games of the series started off, and you know I'm eating crow. I, I picked the Warriors in six. It looked like it was gonna be that way, and Cleveland was able to you know take the momentum away. Uh, game five, Golden State. You know, well they had three chances to close the door, but they weren't able to in game five. Up three one, and not able to get it done. Winning the first two at home, they held serve. Golden State did. <clears throat> Cleveland wins game three at home. But Golden State was able to break through on the road and get that road win. And then it's going back to Oakland 3-1. And Cleveland returned the favor and won on Golden State's home court. And then, you know, the the momentum just, is just kind of like an avalanche. It just built steam and um, – you know, Golden State just never was never able to to grasp and wrestle the momentum back away from Cleveland. Well, and and I've seen some NBA stars uh, kind of talking about this. And yes, we know that the Warriors won the championship last year, but Game Seven, when your legs are done, you've been you've grinded it out. You know, eighty-two game season. You know, twenty plus games, but you you this the seven game series. Your legs are done, and the jump shots just don't fall. I think had Golden State had somebody, and this is where you think maybe Bogut would have been a difference maker. Somebody on the inside that would have was at least respectable could have done something different. But what the Cavs did, they did differently than what Oklahoma City did in Game Seven. When the Warriors came out of halftime with that lead and it got up to eight or nine points, and then J.R. Smith goes on his personal 8-0 run with very, very good shots. See, that's the thing. When people get down to the Warriors, they feel rushed and they take bad shots and they feed into the what the Warriors are doing. The Cavs didn't do that. They had very, very good possessions. And, you know, and I disagreed with – Jeff Van Gundy in real time, if you remember, he said, you know, they got to get into their stuff earlier. No, they don't. Cleveland is being deliberate, forcing tempo. And then when the Warriors got the ball, they were the ones that were pressing a little bit. Uh, and I know, you know, it, it, it's not like Golden State was blown out in a play here or a play there, but, but you can see what the Cavs were doing, what they were committed to doing. Uh, it helps to have LeBron, you know, let's be honest with that. It does help to have the, the best player in the world on your team. Uh, and for LeBron to bring the championship back to Cleveland, that is spectacular. That is storybook stuff. It, it really is. Uh, another thing that kind of glared at me with this series is, let me just say Steph Curry is a fantastic basketball player. He is. He's, he's fantastic. I'm not taking anything away from it. But, and, you know, here comes the but. But it was Cleveland's game plan to attack him defensively. 
And I can't remember on a stage like this where the plan was to attack the two-time MVP. That was what they wanted. They wanted Curry to guard Kyrie for that last shot. That was their game plan was, was to attack him. However you slice it and dice it, that was what they wanted to do, and that is how they attacked. Is they, they really forced Curry to play defense. And, and that uh, what ultimately, I think, affected his offense. And uh, you've got to tip your hat to Tyron Lue. Uh, you know, he's gone from just being the guy that Iverson stepped over in that iconic shot to he, he and, you know, people can say LeBron's the coach, whatever. Lue made the adjustments he needed to make to win the championship. And I don't think Steve Kerr did. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, and, and, you know, the, the suspension in game five, that was another thing, like you said, that uh, yeah, once it slipped away, they were, they were, they were able, never able to uh, recover it. You mentioned Bogut would have helped uh, because none of the other big guys, Spates and Azili, and, and they just they just didn't have anything. Uh, it just wasn't a good matchup for them the way it was going, you know. It wasn't like Mozgov was out there for Cleveland, so it just it just wasn't working to try to go big with those guys. Um, and, you know, it, like you, you, you do have to credit Lou, um, and you got to credit Kyrie. You got you to gotta credit all of them, you know, uh, to regroup the way they did for Kevin Love to be, just a non-factor in the first half of the series, and then for him to, you know, show up in Game Seven and rebound, and, uh, stick with Steph and stay in front of him and force him into a tough shot that would have tied it. Um, you got to give him credit for that. For Cleveland to clamp Golden State for the last four minutes of the fourth quarter when it's, it's crunch time, it's money time, it's winning time, like Reggie Miller used to say. You know, that's that's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Cavs actually had big men that could uh, stay with Curry a little bit. I thought Tristan Thompson, his defense on those pick and rolls, uh, I mean, yeah, you know, Steph is going to get his in those situations. But he had to do his second or third move, which over time, you know, that, that, that's one of those things that kind of adds to those tired legs. Uh, you know, the Cavs could have mailed it in, and and they didn't. I think Golden State is going to look back. Of course, Draymond Green has owned up to his, his, his situation. He absolutely, it was the right call for him to be suspended uh, because of the, the multiple crotch shot. That was a, a had to. Uh, LeBron, I think, baited him into it, and he took the bait. And that's one thing uh, we haven't necessarily seen LeBron do, but that is – I mean, he he got into Green's head, and I think he ended up getting into the head of, uh, of, of Steph as well with those blocks. Game seven, you know, he blocks that one, and Steph, you know, makes contact with him and says something to him. That's – that's what you, that LeBron has reached that point where now 
his, his physical skills, I think, have plateaued. I don't think they've eroded, but they have plateaued. Now it's that mental part. You know, he's got the same amount of championships at the same age as Jordan. And I know that Jordan being 6-0 and in the finals, that's the be-all, end-all. But LeBron, with a, with a good sporting cast, who, who's going to bet against him? Especially if he stays in the East, and they probably won't get challenged in the East until the uh, conference finals. Would, at this point, would you bet against LeBron? Would LeBron and Kyrie, would you bet against those guys? I don't know if you, if you would. So LeBron has, totally has the opportunity to add two or three more titles to his resume and, and sit at the big boy table. I, yeah, what we're seeing is historic. I'll, I'll get back to that for sure. We got a caller on the line now calling us from the 3-1-0. Let's get that line open. And turn the mic on. Hello, caller. You're on Cat Talk Wednesday. How you doing? Are you there? Maybe they're just holding in the list. And you are more than welcome to do that. All right. But uh, there's some, some shuffling going on in the league now in the East. Uh, we'll see. What happens when all the moving and shaking is done? Um, Jeff Teague is going to Indiana from Atlanta. Um, I don't know what else Larry Bird and Nate McMillan are going to do. That might be the top contender just right now. Like I said, we'll see what Fragency does. Derrick Rose is going to New York. I'm not saying the Knicks are going to be challenging in the East or East Conference Finals. Uh, it'd be hard to bet against LeBron in the East. LeBron and Kyrie, they've already said Kevin Love is coming back. But I don't know if that's tasty. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It just says winning a title covers the multitude of sins. Uh, I mean... For the bulk of the season, bulk of the playoffs, it's probably doubtful that Kevin Love is going to be back. Um, they were able to make a historic comeback. 32 teams before Cleveland that tried to overcome a 3 1 deficit in the finals. 32 teams have failed. Uh, now Cleveland is the first to do that. Um, LeBron brings the title back to Cleveland, which last year I was pulling. I, I just reversed. My pick last year, I thought he would maybe it was two storybook. I thought he would in his first year come back to Cleveland and do it. I picked the Cavs in six. I think we both picked Cleveland in six last year, so I was wrong there. Golden State win this year. I picked Golden State and Cleveland win. But to come back to Cleveland, get to the finals in your first year, back home, lose, come back in year two, get to the finals again, and get down three to one and then win three in a row to win a title for your home city in the first time in 52 years, that is even more storybook than if he had won it in his first year back home. Yeah, I mean, and I kept, when the Cavs had a lead, you know, in the fourth quarter, game seven, you're 
you're thinking, don't do this to the Cleveland fan base. They've been through a lot. Don't let them get this close to a historic uh, comeback. But let me point out, the last team to win on the road a Game 7 in NBA history, your 1978 Baltimore Bullets, led by Seneca High School alumni Wes Unseld. So let me just throw that out there. But <laughs> but the way the Cavs did it, uh, you know, I don't know if Love stays or if he goes, but it's kind of hard to, you know, he's got to ask himself. If he stays with LeBron, there's, there's that chance. You, you've always got a shot. And if you can take how tough he is, you know, I, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but if you can uh, handle what LeBron's dishing out, you, you got a shot. I mean, you legitimately got a shot. Um, and the thing is that, that people don't understand is uh, if you've got a, you've got a stud, you've got a, a LeBron who is, is otherworldly, the next thing you know, Richard Jefferson, who is uh, close to 40, close to our age, comes in, and he's a valuable contributor. And then I look up, and Mo Williams is getting some run in the NBA Finals, some quality points. Uh, Dante Jones comes in the other night and, and gets five uh, baskets in a short amount of uh, five points in a short amount of time. Your role players and other guys feed off that. Last year was LeBron's performance. You know there were guys that couldn't do that, but if you've got LeBron on the other side, if you're Kyrie, why not go all out and strive to be great? You, you've got LeBron who's being LeBron. And if you go do your thing, see what you know, you see what happens. After every championship, you know, teams are going to have things they need to address. You know, there's going to be salary cap and everything like that. But as LeBron has shown over the past six years, if you have LeBron James on your team, you can get to the finals. You can do that. You know, if he if he goes to the finals next year, I know, you know, MJ, a lot of people are made to him being best ever, but seven straight finals, that's that's pretty darn good. But that's a that's down the road. But this performance, you just have to enjoy what LeBron James does. You you really do. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, I mean you gotta give him gotta give credit where credit's due. Um and for for those who <laughs> Everybody is just coming out and saying, for those that hate on him, you can't hate on him anymore. And now there's, you know, there's no legs for those types to stand on. And, and I don't know, everybody wants to hate on something. Everybody wants to call people out for hating when they're not, or maybe they are, maybe they aren't, whatever. Um, you got to respect what he just did. Um a lot of people may nitpick him for not having that killer instinct like some of the other great players, and that there's times when he hasn't. Uh, in being so quick to say don't hate on him, now they're hating on everybody else. They're trying to throw shade everywhere else. It's just crazy. That's what Twitter and stuff is. But, you know, he, he put him on his shoulders, man, for three straight games. You know, he wasn't going to be denied. He said he gave everything, and he did, you know, in the postgame. Uh, he really did. Yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, he didn't come out in game seven. I didn't realize it until I was watching ESPN, and, and not to call Curry Saul, 
but he he sat out for eight or nine minutes. You know, game seven that can't happen. Your your guy has to be out there in these closeout games. You you've got to be out there. I think that the the Warriors play reckless. That's that's how they do. They the some of the shots they take are bad shots, but that's that's what they do. Uh, they're sometimes careless with the basketball, and we saw that with with Steph with that behind the back play, uh, pass to Clay Thompson, totally not needed. And, and and you see that was just one of those things that in a game like that you you can't do that. You can't give up uh, possession. I think the Warriors will be back in the mix uh, next year. I think uh, the Cavs will be back in the mix. It's going to be interesting to see what Kevin Durant does. I personally think he's staying in Oklahoma City uh, just based on the way they were able to, uh, you know, contend with, uh, you know, Golden State. Uh, So next season is going to be fun. It's really going to be uh, fun, but tip your hat to LeBron. Uh, the series turned basically because Draymond Green, Green could not stop hitting dudes in the crotch. I mean, that's that's basically, and, and you know, and that's going to be his kind of cross to bear. You know, even if they win uh, another one, you know, the one that got away because of this. So it it was a great finals to watch. My heart was racing in Game Seven, and my team wasn't even playing. I mean that's that's the thing is I, I was I was engaged as if one of my teams uh, were involved, um, and I you know everybody knows I'm a Kobe guy, and well um, I, I think LeBron has taken that leap where where he's you know he's 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 top five. I was talking to Brian Eldridge on Twitter, and I said you know. If you could have a pickup game of, of all the NBA Hall of Famers in their prime, you know where do you where does LeBron go? You know that's kind of my whole thing. If you're picking up a team, how many picks before somebody picks LeBron? And, and I don't think it's that many. I, I really don't. The way he's playing right now, I don't think it's that many. Yeah, wow. Let's think about that too, and we'll get back to your. T- later on as well because it looks like they might have made their decision on who they're going to select first tomorrow. So we'll talk about all that uh, as well. But now we'll shift from one final series in one sport to a final series in another sport. We'll go from NBA to NHL. we got our dude Craig Bates back on, UT Hall of Famer, who's on to talk uh, a preview to the Stanley Cup final between Pittsburgh and San Jose. Now that is wrapped up, and now we'll bring Craig Bates on to wrap up the series and give us his analysis on the series. Uh, unfortunately, Pittsburgh won the Stanley Cup, but we'll still talk about it anyway. Craig, welcome to the show. How you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine, gentlemen. How are we today? Doing fantastic. Yeah, you can play. Can't complain. Can't complain. We well, you, you can, but it won't do much good, right? <laughs> exactly. 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 We had you on right before game two of the Stanley Cup final, and Pittsburgh had already won the first game. 
uh, and we had you analyzing it and breaking it down. So just you know, kind of pick up where you left off and, and recap the series, which was won by the Pittsburgh Penguins, and continue to educate us on all things NHL. Well, you know, it, it's funny because one of the things that we had talked about was, you know, was was how it was going to be where. Yeah, you know, some of the you know some of the different players. You know, one of the things that I've always you know I'm a sports guy, I always have been, and one of the things that really is different in the NHL than it is in a lot of the other sports, with you know with the possible exception of maybe baseball, is you know in in the, in the NFL and NBA to me, you know you've got your you've got your starting guys and you've got the guys that you can count on, and yeah, you've got other guys that can come in and 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 take minutes and everything else in in some of the other sports, but you know with the NHL especially. You know, it's not just about your, you know, your top line. It's not just about your top top guys in there. It's really about, you know, what you can do with the, you know, with the second, third, and fourth line guys that, you know, that can that can do something. And that was a big thing that, you know, that really that really came out to me. You know, the, the Sharks had lost one of their good players, Hurdle. You know, he got he got injured and and wasn't able to play in some of the later games. But you know, what really struck out struck to me, and and to me, it was a big reason why. I think the Penguins ultimately prevailed in the series was because simply because they had, you know, they had four lines that could really do a lot of good things. And, and, you know, that line of what they, I think they called the HBK line with Carl Hagelin and Benino and Phil Kessel, you know, they, they were doing a lot of the scoring for them and, and, you know, being able to match up in that way. And yeah, the Sharks had some injuries and yeah, they had done some other things, but that was a big, a big deal to me was, was to be able to see these guys that can come in on, on the second line and the third line for the Penguins and really be able to contribute and make things happen. And I think that was a big difference between that and the fact that, you know, the, the defense for the, for the Penguins was a big part of it because there were a lot of unheralded guys, you know, the Sharks had, had burns and a lot of, you know, a lot of players in there that could do things, but not a lot of people knew about the defensemen for the Sharks. I mean, for the Penguins. And that was a big deal for them because they really shut down the top lines for, for the Sharks, and like you said, when you get to when you get to where you're in, you know the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you get you know it's almost like it, to me the the big thing about the Stanley Cup playoffs is it it turns into a little bit of a a war of attrition because you got guys that are getting hurt, and you've got guys that might be beaten up, and that's what you know the, I think the joke that I made last time a guy could lose his arm in the NHL playoffs, and they would lose it, they would list it as an upper body injury. So I mean it's just you know, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of talk about what's going on with people and. And and that's a big thing for me was you know that really came out was that the sharks I mean the sharks weren't able to keep up with with what the the penguins had to offer and being able to roll lines that that were contributing all all around and that to me was was ultimately what what really made the difference for them to be able to win the cup in six games I know a lot of the the, the Pens fans would have would have liked to have seen them win in game five at home and the you know, the first home win for for the city of Pittsburgh in, in a long time but. You know, ultimately, it just came down to they had, you know, they had more talent as far as across various lines than, than the Sharks did, and the Sharks haven't been beaten up in the Western Conference somewhat. Just weren't able to keep up with really the speed is is what got them from from the Penguin standpoint. That's what we talked about the contrast speed versus size, and speed kind of wore down the size as the series progressed, right? Exactly, and I mean, I think that's what you know. That's the big thing with, you know, the one thing that always winds up happening, no matter what sport it is, is if somebody creates a a template for success, like the like the Penguins did, you know, people are going to be looking to to really copy that, and and that was the big thing that that came out is they were able to roll, 
you know, so many lines with guys, you know, when you've got a guy like Benino and you've got a guy like Hagelin and a guy like Kessel who are running on your second line, I mean, that's not counting, you know, Crosby and Malkin and the guys that they might have running on their first line. Then to me, you know, it, it really becomes what can, you know, what can the guys that you have that are there on these second lines that, that match up with maybe your second line guys can't keep up with the speed of a Hagelin or a Kessel or a Benino. I mean, that's where it really starts to show, you know, where you're going to get your offensive scoring chances and you've got defensemen who are there trying to keep up with everything. And, you know, like you said, it, it just winds up where, where the speed kills and you and you wind up having to, to play catch up a little bit. And the Sharks who've been, who did so well going through the Western Conference, you know, they weren't able to, to kind of keep up with everything moving on. You know, you look at it from a, from a you know, a semi-local standpoint, you know, the, the Predators and Nashville were able to take the Sharks to seven games. And, you know, it, you know, a lot of the way that they, that the, the Preds are set up are very similar to the way that things are set up for, you know, for the Sharks and the Sharks were able to break through and beat them in the seventh game. And they were able to take out Dallas. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things where it'll be interesting now to see what happens as far as what other teams try to do with salary caps and everything else to kind of model themselves after what the Penguins did to win the cup. Does the NHL have like a uh, MVP of the series of the Stanley Cup final, like the most outstanding player or something like that? Yeah, they've got what they call the the Conn Smythe Trophy, and it went to, of course, it went to, and I'm, and I'm saying this through gritted teeth, but you know, it went to Sidney Crosby, and he won it. And you know, there's a lot of people that uh, that had said that you know that Phil Kessel, the you know the American guy who's you know his sister played at the University of Minnesota, and you know, had had not done a lot with uh, you know with Toronto after coming over there from Boston. Probably should have won it. But you know, the thing, the intangible, you know, the thing that you always hear about the intangibles, the intangibles that Crosby brought. And yeah, he played well, and he was able to get the uh, the Consmith Trophy as the the playoff MVP. But it certainly could have gone to to Phil Kessel or you know, or even Murray, who's the the goalie for the Sharks. Here, I mean, for the Penguins. You know, here's a guy who's what, 21 years old and playing really in one of his first real playoff series and winds up winning a, you know, winning a Stanley Cup at that age for the Penguins. I mean, there was a lot of guys that, that, that could have taken home the Consmite Trophy. But, you know, Crosby, like I said, he did a good job. He helped lead the team. He, you know, he set a lot of players up. And, you know, I don't think he was an undeserving, uh, an undeserving Consmite Trophy winner, MVP winner. But I do think that, you know, in, in a vacuum, guys like Kessel and, and maybe even Murray the goalie, probably may have done more to win the MVP trophy, but, you know, I, I don't see any issue beyond uh, the things that, we, that we've talked about before about uh, about Mr. Crosby that would be uh, precluding him from winning that award. Now, this question might not thrill you either, but we are <laughs> casual hockey fans here. Is Sidney Crosby the best player in the game Today, or is it a debate? Is there somebody else right there on his level? What, what's the dynamic? Well, you know, to me, it, it's funny because you know, there's so many different, there's so many different things that are not, you know, and in the interest of, of being, you know, non-judgmental about things, do I think he is one of the better players in the league? Absolutely, I think he is. You know, he's got the the talent level to be able to do things, but. You know, it, it's funny because when you talk about a LeBron or you talk about, you know, whoever you want to talk to, you talk about like a J.J. Watt, say, in the NFL or, 
you know, whoever it may be, you know, if you look at baseball, look at a, a Baumgartner maybe as a pitcher for the Giants. You know, to me, Crosby, you know, pure talent-wise, do I think he's the most talented guy in the league? No. Do I think he brings leadership capabilities and other things as well? Absolutely. I mean, you look at a you know guy that has made some some let's say poor personal decisions in Patrick Kane. You know, you've got uh, Jamie Benn in Dallas. You can even make make arguments for for Weber there in Nashville with with the shot that he has. I mean, to me, you look at the Jonathan Taves in in Chicago as well. There are a lot of guys. You know, the up and coming guys, Jack Eichel, who's who's playing up in Buffalo as a rookie this past year. Connor McDavid, who was the number one pick last year, who's in Edmonton. You know, there are there are guys that can do different things. You know, if you're talking about sheer make you just watch things happen, you know, it's funny to me because I'm going through the head of the players that I think are are the best ones. You know, the person that which is kind of a little disturbing to me, but you know, as far as pure you know unadulterated talent, the fact that I didn't think of Alex Ovechkin first and foremost kind of shows where. You know, his lack of winning a title or taking the Capitals further than they have is is pretty you know is 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 pretty amazing as far as that's concerned. Because to me, watching him on a you know on a night nightly basis, because I watch a lot of NHL, things that Ovechkin can do with the puck, things that he can do, hitting, passing, shooting. You know, he doesn't play defense as well as as he used to. I mean, it, you know, to me. Crosby's in in the mix is one of the better players in the league right now. But you know, as as he does things, you know, he doesn't have the hardest shot. He can make some really good passes. He sets people up. But do I think of him as like this dominant player who can really take things over? No. I mean, he just and it has nothing to do with him playing against a rival of my team or anything else like that. It's just you can't argue with the fact that he's brought two Stanley Cups to Pittsburgh. And yes, it's their first cup in seven years. He's won a gold medal. He is a phenomenal player, but he's not, to me, one of the guys that will make you just jump up out of your seat to to see things happen. I I saw Wayne Gretzky play in person, and and seeing him play in person and seeing how he saw the ice and everything else, you could tell, you know, to me, why you call him the great one. And and Crosby does a lot of things well, but he doesn't do anything to me that's just exceptional as far as, you know, as what other people do. But, yes, I would have to say that, you know, in in the top ten players, let's say in the NHL, he absolutely would fall in that 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 category just because of of the things that he can do from a from a leadership standpoint, from a you know passing shot, doing doing other things. Yeah, he's not maybe not as flashy as some of the other guys, but you know he gets the job done. And you know, especially in the NHL, when you're a part of a, a, a team that's rolling through multiple lines and doing multiple things, that goes a long way. You're talking with UT Hockey Hall of Famer Craig Bates. Let's switch to Gordy Howe, who sadly passed away a few days after Muhammad Ali. Uh, just a legend. You know the name, even if you don't know anything about hockey. Give us your thoughts, whatever it is you want to say about him or his game. Or well, you know, you know, it's it's fun. It's funny. I think I, you know, I had I had tweeted to you, to you gentlemen, that picture of him. I think fishing on a boat, and you know, just to see how, just strong of a man he was. And it really is. You know, I I was thinking all day. You know, the parallels, because you know, when you when you know, as every sport is, sport, 
trend, you know, different generations do different things. You know, from a from an NBA perspective, you look at a Bill Russell or even a George Mikan and some of the some of the folks that were that played back in the you know back in the in the golden years, let's say, of different sports. You know, it, it's hard sometimes to be able to equate what what a player from one generation would be like in another generation. You know, there was a, you know, when all the things came out about when, when, when Gordy Howe passed away and, you know, just players that talked about one of the, one of the stories that I love was hearing about was, you know, when he came back and you're talking about a guy that played, you know, at the, in the WHA, which was, you know, the, the kind of the rival to the NHL back in the seventies and, you know, Brett Hull's dad, Bobby Hull played in the WHA and some of those teams, the Whalers, the Jets, the Oilers, you know, they came into the NHL back in 79, you know, and Gordie Howe's still playing at a, at a, you know, professional level when he's 51, 52 years old, you know, playing with his sons and being able to, to play at that level. And, you know, one of the stories that they came out with and talking about him was that one of the guys when he was playing at 51 had talked about the, that he had gotten, you know, hit by Gordie Howe, you know, with, with an elbow, and had, had broken his nose and came in the locker room and they were talking, and he, you know, he said something about, man, I can't believe that Gordy Howe broke my nose. And all the other players in the room talked about their body parts that had been broken by Gordy Howe in the course of playing with him. And, you know, and each one, you know, and, you know of the 20, 21 guys in the room, 18, 20 guys in the room, every single one of them, oh, I broke my finger when he slashed me. I you know, broke my nose. I broke a cheekbone. You know, he told the story. There was a story that he would tell about he waited 14 years to get a guy back that had cross-checked him when he was a rookie. And, you know, and, and he, you know, this guy, the guy that was playing, I can't remember who it was, but it had, had taken Gordie Howe out when he was a rookie. And it was a story that you know, he had told Gordie Howe before the game that he wasn't feeling too good. And so Gordie Howe had let up on him. And so the next time they went in the corner, he had elbowed Gordie Howe in the head. And so Gordie Howe <laughs> waited 14 years and finally got him back and said, finally, you, you know what? I got you back, and you know, and the guy was thinking this was 14 years ago, and so you know, it's the you know, it's the the expression that we always talk about, guys like myself that have played hockey forever. You know, there's a there's even a line of clothing called old time hockey, and it's you know, if you've ever seen the movie Slapshot, talking about you know, old time hockey, you get in there and you do things. One of the things that's a, when you talk about the the lexicon of hockey, there's a there's a there's a, a term for in hockey that's called a Gordie Howe hat trick. You know, a, a traditional hat trick is three goals in a game. A Gordie Howe hat trick is to have a goal, an assist, and a fight in one game. And, you know, and that's it, the funny thing is Gordie Howe even laughed about it. He goes, I only did that twice in my career. But to me, you know, it was, it, you know, that was kind of the term for, you know, just old school toughness. And, you know, guys back in that day, as you, as you all know, with things in the old NFL and the old NBA, you know, guys would, would work in the, you know, work in the family farms and work and everything else. I mean, Gordie Howe played, professional baseball in the off season because he was a good enough athlete to do that and to be able to see you know with as you all know with sticks these days sticks are composite sticks and they're curved back in those days you know they were they were flat sticks so you know Gordy Howe could shoot as hard left-handed as he could shoot right-handed and so you know to me it's just um, you know it's it's a bygone era but to me it's one of these things that just and going back and watching the film and watching things that happened from from the old days of hockey, I mean, it's a completely different sport than it used to be. You know, guys played long, you know, long term. You know, you know, they played a long time. They weren't getting a lot of money, and in the summer times they worked. But you know, 
when you look at all of the respect, I mean, there's been a push even from, from Wayne Gretzky, kind of uh, similar to what, to what other sports have done, to try and retire the number nine throughout the NHL because he means that much to, to the sport of hockey. And not only that, but he was an ambassador for, um, you know, for the sport. I mean, there were never any people – you know, he might have to wait two hours from all the people that were that were trying to get an autograph from him, but he didn't care. He would sign any autograph. He would do anything to kind of push the sport of hockey. And so, to me, that's you know that's what, what where he transcends. Like you said, you know, people might not know who who certain players are, but everybody knows where Gordy Howe is. And I know personally, you know, when you get two different times that they make a reference to Gordy Howe on The Simpsons, you know, you must be transcending something. <laughs> In in in, uh, in in uh Ferris Bueller's day off and Cameron and he wearing a exactly. Gordy Howe jersey. That's that's where I first uh way back when I was a, a youngster, uh kinda noticed uh noticed that exactly. too. So when you become pop culture, you know, transcending your sport, that's that's what I think you you become, you know, bigger than life. Right. And one of my favorite stories and I would be remiss if I didn't share it. You know, you guys have seen hockey sticks where you've got, you know, the, the blade part of a hockey stick, and then you've got what's called the butt end of a hockey stick, and, you know, that's the part you hold on to with your top hand when you're shooting. Well, I had a, a friend of mine who told me the story one time that Gordie Howe would do, would do, you know, clinics for kids. And so this was in the early 80s. And so, you know, the, one of my favorite stories ever because he said that, you know, you know Mr. Hockey, Gordie Howe was out there doing things, and he comes skating out in the ice, and he's got the butt end of his stick, holding a hockey puck on the ice. And so, you know, I don't, you know, the butt end of a stick maybe would fit in the center uh, of a hockey puck. And so Gordie Howe comes out with the hockey, you know, with the, with the butt end of his stick, you know, pushing the, pushing the hockey puck around. And he's got probably 25, 30 kids in this hockey camp. And so he tells the kids, you know, kids, I'm going to teach you a lesson about what you need to do here. And, 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 and so what he says to them is, look, I'm going to, you know, the first lesson is stick handling and being able to control a puck is lesson number one. No matter what you do, you have to be able to stick handle. So, you know, stick handling is hard enough as it is with the blade of a puck. You can imagine, you know, the butt end of a stick that has no stickiness to it. Maybe you have some tape on it. But he said the Gordie Howe had this stick on the ice with the butt end of the stick holding the puck down. He says, kids, the first lesson is stick handling is everything in hockey. So he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to skate around here for five, ten minutes, and I'm going to stick handle with the butt end of this stick holding this puck on the ice like he had it right there. If any of you kids get this puck for me well, you know, and stick handle it away from me, I'm going to give you 100 bucks. And these are all kids that are, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, hot shot kids and knowing hockey. And, and he said, if you get any of this stick, if you get this puck away from me, you know, that's lesson number one is how important stick handling is. So he said, Gordy, you know, somebody blew the whistle, and for the next ten minutes, Gordy Howe stick handled with that puck on the end, on the butt end of his stick. Kids would come into him from all angles, and he was stick handling all over the place. And after ten minutes, the kids are exhausted, and not a single one of them had gotten that puck away from him, even though he was stick handling with the butt end of the stick. So they all come into a pile. Kids are exhausted, and he said, "All right, kids." That's lesson number one. Stick handling is the most important thing you can do. He said lesson number two, and Gordie Howe picked up the stick, and he had nailed the puck to the stick. He said lesson number two is 
do whatever it takes to win. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, know, the kids were all, you know, because – now here they're thinking this man is the greatest stick handler they've ever seen in his life. It didn't matter what he and of course he had he had nailed the puck straight through the puck to the end of his stick and said, You do whatever you have to do to win. So to me that's my favorite Gordie Howe story ever because, you know, you, that's exactly it. You do you know, he was famous for, you know, doing whatever needed to be done to win and, and you know, and he has always been just a always was just a fantastic ambassador for the sport of hockey and and, and to me, it, you know, I, I still own a, a an old ratty T-shirt that has a caricature of Gordy Howe and, and Wayne Gretzky on it. Says, you know, the great one and the greatest one. It is one of my most prized possessions because, you know, the guys the guys that played sports back in the day, you, know, you you can you can appreciate it, even though the sport may have changed and updated and and become a lot different. It, it still is you know, learning from the people in the past that have, you know, that have, have paved the way for all of the sports, no matter which one it is, to be, you know, to be where they are today. Now, That's a fantastic I remember, yeah. Uh, I remember, too, uh, we all remember the, I mean, the sports center has done commercials with every single celebrity, but the woman, Gordy Howe, he, he was showing the sports center anchor Every single cheap shot that he can do, every single thing you can get away, you can take your stick and do this. You can stick your elbow here. You can hit him in the leg or the back of the knee and do this. And at the end, he like says, "Yep, it was a good, clean game when I played." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when he when he passed away, I I found that one because it was it was him and Keith Olbermann, and and Olbermann had yeah. had mentioned that as well how how gracious he was and. And, you know, and when he passed, that was, you know, that's what I immediately put up on, on my social media just because, you know, there's just – it's funny because, in, you know, in the day you'll see pictures of – you know, I know that we talked about that last time, where, you know, the 45 and over hockey thing that I'm doing here in Knoxville. That's one of the pictures we have up on there because, you know, where it used to be – where it's glass now in, in, in the NHL, that used to be almost like chain-link fence that was up there, and guys would – you know, would would drive each other into the chain link fence, and back then, you know, that's that's just what you did in hockey, and that's that's what it was. And you know, to me, that's that's one of the things that you remember. You know, all of us, all of us that remember the players from our past and players that we grew up watching and 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 being a part of. To me, that's a, that's a huge part of you know, in remembering the past and remembering what's been done, but also you know, embracing the the changes in the future and. And and you know and how things have have changed, mostly for the better. Sometimes maybe not for the better. But yeah, it's you've got guys now. When you look at you know some of the old hockey players from back in the day who you know seem to have more you know seem to have more scars than they do unscarred parts of their bodies. You know the game has changed, but it's always you know no matter what sport you're playing, having respect for the past and respect for the for the ones that came before you is always to me such a, an important part of what you do. Oh, definitely, definitely. I got two part question before I let you go, Craig. Oh, once again, maybe I should know, but is it still an an argument as to who's the? I mean, in in, in NBA, it's universally everybody says Jordan's best. Is it an argument between Hal and Wayne Gretzky as who's the best hockey player ever? And the second part. Just give us a little update about the breaking news with the NHL in Vegas. 
Uh, but those are kind of the last two I asked. No, absolutely. You know, if you ask, you know, and that's one of the things that Wayne Gretzky himself said, you know, Wayne Gretzky himself has said that, that Gordy Howe is the greatest player he's ever seen. And, okay. you know, that's one of my one of my favorite images ever is there's a picture that you can easily find out on the Internet. You know, when Gretzky, you know, when you talk about numbers and everything else, you know, when I think he was 10 years old, he played 30, 40 games in a peewee hockey thing, and he scored in 30 games something like 378 goals. And, you know, there's a famous picture of Gordy Howe, you know, with a 10, 11-year-old Wayne Gretzky, you know, saying, you know, kid, you're going to break my all of my records. And, you know, having seen all the old videos of, of Gordy Howe and, and having seen Gretzky in person a couple of times, you know, honestly, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, the, the apples, and argument, uh, apples and oranges argument because the, the era that Gretzky played in was the kind of the high-flying offensive era when you only had, you know, in Howe's day you had the original six, you know, to me, I would never, you know, I, I would be uh, foolish to say that anybody would ever be greater than Wayne Gretzky was just with all the, the goals and all the assists and how he played for so long. But, you know, Gordie Howe, and, and one of the things Gretzky mentions too is, you know, that, that Gordie Howe is a complete player. He could pass, he could shoot, he could fight, he could hit you, he could do everything. You know, Gretzky's game was precluded on – you know, his his was on speed and and you know being being wily and and getting himself in a position to score goals and to do things. I mean, he completely changed the game. There's a lot of people, and and I would sometimes agree with that argument as well. That Bobby Orr, who played, you know, who revolutionized how defensemen play in the NHL, you know, because before that time, or you know, defensemen never jumped into the play, and Bobby Orr completely. You know, that, and that's a little bit of my Boston background coming out, but Bobby Orr completely changed how defensemen played the game. And, you know, but, but to me, you know, it, it's, it's like, like you said, Jordan could, you know, there's, there'll be arguments about Jordan. There'll be arguments about Wilt. There'll be arguments about different, different players. And, and to me, you know, they're both on the pantheon of, of the greatest that ever played. And, you know, from a, if you were to, I remember you guys were talking about before it first came on about, you know, picking an all-star team, you know, and, and would LeBron be up there? To me, you know, you couldn't go wrong with picking with picking Gretzky, or you couldn't go wrong with picking Gordy Howe. You know, if you picked Gretzky, you'd have to have someone there to have his back, which is what the Oilers and Kings and everybody had had guys there that that had Wayne's back. Whereas with 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 Mr. Hockey. You know, you'd have to only be worried about the other team because you would have no problems with him having his own back. And you know, to me, it's it's you know, he's not a guy that I would ever have wanted to see in a dark alley. Although, with how his you know, how he was, he would probably sign you an autograph unless you tried to mess with him, and then he'd take you out. So, you know, as far as that's concerned, you know, I think you couldn't go wrong with either one. But again, it's you know, to me, like I said, Will Chamberlain with being a big man versus say a Jordan who could shoot and do all the things that he could do, you know, trying to pick, trying to pick the greatest one might be difficult, but let's just say that if you had a one and one, a, you couldn't go wrong with the two of them. And, you know, like I said, with my Boston background, Bobby or at least a, a one C or, or a two. Um, and yeah, as far as the breaking news, I mean, it, it's going to be very, very interesting. And, 
And, you know, uh, Mr. Terry, I don't want to monopolize too much of the time, but uh, you know, the <laughs> NHL came out because I, I told you I'd talk fast, so I'm trying to talk fast. But, you know, the uh, – <laughs> but, you know, it did come out today that the NHL did, did expand to Las Vegas uh, starting in the 2017-2018 season. You know, I, I've played I, – I played in a hockey tournament out in Vegas – Back in uh, back in February with a bunch of guys from Knoxville and Cincinnati and and I tell you what I've been to minor league games in Vegas and it'll be uh, it'll be one heck of a home ice advantage I can tell you that much you know everybody's all the interviews you see today is people are talking about you know we're professionals and we're we're doing this I used to to work you know I would do about five or six trade shows a year out in Las Vegas and you know. Thankfully, I, I was, you know, I was more interested in seeing where I could go skate somewhere than, than being involved with all the ruckus that you can get into in Las Vegas. But you know, they have an absolutely gorgeous facility right there off of the Strip. You know, there's a, there's a lot, there's a, you know, like Nashville was. I think I've seen a lot of talk about David Poyle, who's the general manager of the Predators, who's been there since the beginning, has said there's a lot of parallels between Nashville and Las Vegas because. Nashville's an entertainment town. Vegas is, you know, the entertainment town for things. And so, to me, there's there's a lot of parallels, and you know, there's a there's a lot of people, and you know, and you think about it yourself. And I think one of the things that we talked about in a tweet is, you know, I think that the NFL with the Raiders, or you know, however they're going to do it, the NBA, Commissioner Silver has talked about the fact that there's a lot of other leagues, and even the, even Major League Baseball has talked about it. There's a lot of leagues that want to see how the NHL does in Vegas just to see if it will, you know, if it's something that will be able to, to really capture the attention and capture things that are going on. Because I think there's, there, like, you know, like you said, Benny, there's a lot of talk about the fact that Vegas is, you know, the NHL is first for Vegas, and I think it has an opportunity. Because if you look at other teams, if you go to, if you're from Chicago, you're from New York, you're from, you know, anywhere, hey, let's make a weekend of it and go to Vegas and do, you know, and try and pretend that we're in the hangover part four and go out there and catch our team while we're doing a part of this. I think that's a great way for them to market it. And I think them being there first, having this building in place, having this absolutely, you know, I've seen all the pictures. I've watched it going out there over time, being, you know, going out there for, for trade shows and stuff. I watched the arena getting built and I'm thinking, you know, if you get the population in Vegas to be a part of it, if you get, the people that are there to, to really buy into it, because there are a lot of hockey fans in Vegas. I think you have an excellent opportunity to, to really build on something. I think it will act as a really good template for bringing other teams into, you know, from other leagues into there as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. Appreciate your perspective, playing there, going there countless times. Sounds like it will kind of be like uh, Miami, the Miami Heat have a big home court advantage when, you know, opposing teams come to South Beach and then they got to, you know, play a game. Uh, sounds like Vegas could have that same kind of home ice advantage once they get their uh, organization and team and franchise started there as well. Well, as long as any of the casinos don't take prop bets on which was the first NHL player to get in trouble while they're out there, I think they'll be all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, you know, and the NBA has had some success with the All Star Game in in Las Vegas. So I think right, and it, and if memory serves, they do the D League out there as well. And so yeah, the, you know yeah, it, yeah. It, it, 
there's been, you know, it just kind of, you know, and it's funny because a lot of the things that I saw talked about was, you know, it used to be that old taboo of, you know, gambling and everything else. But, you know, there was an interesting stat that I saw tweeted out today that said something like 19 of the NFL stadiums have a casino within like 50 miles of them. And so, you know, with all of these different organizations that do online betting, everything else, you know, the old, the old concept of how it would be really has changed a great deal. And I think it's, it's something that, you know, like we talked about in our Twitter discussions, it'll be very interesting to me to see how it all plays out as far as, you know, getting people to, to, you know, realize that this is a, I mean, it, They've grown a great deal. There's a lot more people in there. It's one of the, you know, one of the, it is a smaller market, but, you know, you get a lot of the people that are saying, oh, yeah, well, that worked out so well in Phoenix and everything else. But, you know, it has worked out well in Anaheim and in, you know, in, in you know, San Jose, and it has worked out well in, in Los Angeles. So I think, you know, the deep pockets that they have and with the other opportunities that are out there right now, I mean, I, I think it, it has every reason to succeed. And like I said, it might not be, you know, it might not be the first thing you think of with, with, with Vegas is, is hockey, but Hey, you know, carrot top's been out there for a while and who would have thought he'd have done well. So, Hey, stranger <laughs> things have happened. The king of pop comedy, you know, it's a good discussion when uh carrot top gets, uh, gets into the discussion. So that, that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I've seen him lately. He's pretty bulked up, so I'm hoping he doesn't listen and come, you know, show up at my door and, and throw a couple punches my way. But hopefully, he's got, you know, he's got more things to pull out of boxes. Who knows? Right. <laughs> Man, Craig, thanks so much for coming on again and putting the bow on the season. You know, recapping the rest of the Stanley Cup Final, uh, talking Gordy Howe, NHL Vegas. And all that, man. It was it was a lot of fun. We always enjoy having you on with us. Well, it, hey, it's always a pleasure, gentlemen. I love what you guys are doing. And then, Vinny, I'm telling you, Ice Chalet is opening up on Sunday, so I'm fully expecting to get you out there and skating sometime soon, my friend. I'm going to do it. I'm going to come down and strain and pull whatever muscles I've never worked. Cause there's hockey muscles that I'm sure are going to be screaming when I get off of that ice. Right, and I'm hearing Terry laugh in the background. I'm just saying it's not that far of a drive down to Knoxville, my friends. We can get all of us out there. We you know, give you some uh, give you some lessons, give you some pointers. We'll uh, we'll we might even throw you know get you guys set up and throw some pucks in the corner and let you guys fight it out gladiator style. Now, now here's the here's the here's the funny part. Vinny knows how tough my youngest is. Little Miss is tough. So we go ice skating in the in the in the winter. They got an out park and, and everything like that. But we I forgot we had watched some of the women's Olympic hockey the, during the last Olympics. So she's out there kind of ice skating whatever, and I'm hugging the wall, and she comes full speed at me, leans in with her shoulder and catches me square in the thigh. She said, "I'm playing hockey." And I, and, I said, and I said to myself, okay, so uh, this 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 uh, winter, I intend on getting her out there and, and playing some hockey. If nothing else, she can fight with the best of them. So we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you, I coach the kids hockey here in Knoxville. So anytime she wants to come down, you know she's got she's got the offer. You know, you talk about that. My my nine year old. 
kid that, you know, goes around full speed and, you know, he's the one that's been nicknamed Mad Dog and he's the one that one time said he wanted to check somebody. So he picked a kid that was probably, you know, learned to skate who was probably 13 or 14 and checked this kid and the kid flew up in the air and landed and landed on my son and landed on his head. So I came skating over and said, what do you think there, buddy? And he just went, yeah, I'm not doing that again, Dad. That wasn't a very good idea. And I'm just – and he's the, kid that's running, he's the kid that's running around hitting everybody, and they go, whose kid is that? And then they look at me and they go, oh, that explains it. So, you know, I, I, he gets it on us. That's all I can say. So. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and gentlemen, anytime there's an open offer, y'all want to come down there, we can – we can get you out there with the kids, and and Terry, you can let yeah, you know, we'll get you padded up and let let your daughter take you out full speed, and we we we'll see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a great I will, idea. I'll be I was gonna say the only the only the only caveat is we got to have the cameras rolling. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can live with that. I can live with that. <laughs> yeah, that. That that's not a problem on my end as well. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm I might be uh, I'm not going to write this one into pen, so I'm going to run it in with with pen, and we'll we'll get you you know get the families down there, and we'll have we'll have one night where we'll get everybody out on the ice, and then we'll have a blast. Sounds it like sounds a plan to me. Thanks, Rick. Treat All right, gentlemen, y'all have a great show, and, and as always, thanks for having me on, and it's an absolute pleasure to to be able to do this with you guys, and and you know, absolutely love what you're doing, and and anytime you need me to. To come on, uh, you know, it's completely my honor to do so. Well, we appreciate it. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. UT Hockey Hall of Famer, Craig Bates, dropping knowledge as we wrap up NHL season. And when the NBA starts up, NHL starts up as well. I have to have Craig on to preview, you know, who's favorite, will the pink ones repeat, and – and do a little preview, season preview type uh, segment with him next time, you know, October, November, when it's time for the season to start. We'll take a quick break here, time breath. We still got to talk about NBA draft. We might double back on some more NBA finals. Cal and Patino was a little spat there, some shade being thrown. We'll talk about all that and more TV. Uh, everybody's listening to Cast Talk Wednesday, Benny Hardy, Terry Brown. The Brown and Hardy Radio Network, blogtalkradio.com. Hope you're enjoying this Wednesday. We'll be right back in just a few minutes.
that he had zero faith in, in, in this board doing what it has been charged to do. Uh, look, every university wants to, to bring in money. That's, that's part of it. I think we all understand that. Kentucky does it. IU, EKU, I mean, they all do it. UT, bringing in money, whether it's on the athletic side or academic, that's the name of the game. But I think there's a way you go about doing your fundraising. And a lot of the things UofL was doing, I don't think, and, you know, hopefully as these investigations uh, conclude, uh, obviously other people don't think that the board and, and, and Dr. Ramsey were acting like a public university. And I think kind of the, um, if you want to look at the, the deal that really explains it, it's the Yum Center. And we all know the Yum Center probably won't make money. It won't bring in what people thought it was going to be because UofL has, has first dibs on everything. So all my UofL friends said, well, Jurich had to take that offer. Well, no. You do that if you're a business, but you don't do that if you are, if you want to be, well, you have to be part of the community. And I think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And there's been other things like that on the academic side that, you know, this isn't the way a university needs to, to make money. Uh, a lot of things happening behind closed doors. Come to find out Ramsey's salary is quadruple what Dr. Capilouto is making at, at, at UK and, and is equal to uh, universities with a higher academic standing. Uh, I mean, when you, when you look at that UK, and I, I forget the, where it is, U.S. News World Report, UK is significantly higher than, than UofL, but here's Dr. Ramsey making this money. It, 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 there's a lot going on to it. Uh, I think we're going to see some other things come out uh, about what went on kind of behind closed doors. Uh, I definitely, this does not bring me any happiness. Uh, it is my hometown school. It's where I live right now. I think mm-hmm. a, a good, strong, vibrant University of Louisville is good for the city and state. It is necessary. I'm not one of these Kentucky fans that says Louisville doesn't exist. They do exist because at most things except for football, we beat them. But as far as uh, an educational institution, it, it has a necessary mission. And this has just been a long time coming where you have to say, okay, enough's enough. Every time you look up, there's another scandal, another misstep from Ramsey's office. En- enough has to be enough. And I think we finally uh, saw that with Bevan's move. Yeah. Uh... <clears throat> And there's still some that are supporting him. I saw a quote from a supporter saying that the new board, you know, might not, you know, he's forced to resign from the new board, might not take it or accept it. So, you know, it makes it sound like there's a potential or a small chance of maybe that Art Brow situation where you're going, but, hey, maybe there's a chance that we take a vote and see about trying to, Make something happen to bring you back. So it's it's a lot of up 
you're always going to find somebody that that wants uh, their guy to stay. I mean, that's the way it is. But I think the best thing for the university to move forward is is a change of leadership at the top. It's it's at that point. Um, you know, talking about on the athletic side with the scandal. You know, a, a lot of my Louisville friends, you know, point to Kentucky's probation with Eddie Sutton. And my thing is, people lost their jobs. People left. When that scandal went down, Sutton gone. I mean, the only person that stayed was Bill Kitely. Yep, that was a gots-to-go situation. But <laughs> that has not happened. And, I, you know, I don't think it will happen uh, at, at UofL. Uh now that Ramsey has kind of gone and will kind of fall a little bit on that athletic side as well, it's not a good situation. I don't wish it on the university, but uh, it, it, it's, it's beyond time to, to, to clean it up. I don't know what right. Bevin, if, what, if what Bevin did is legal, because I know he wants to do a board of less than what the state constitution mandates. So there's still going to be a lot of wrangling back and forth with Bevin, uh, with the attorney general, with uh, those, those agencies that oversee higher education. It's not a done deal by any stretch, but I think it was significant uh, that he made this move. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because Louisville hadn't taken any action themselves. I mean, did. I, I didn't look up the date, but I think I'm going to still be right historically. Wallace Wilkinson didn't have to make Eddie Sutton and everybody leave when Kentucky was in, you know, that mess in the 80s, right? I mean, the university took action on its own, right? Yeah, and that and that's the thing is the university, and, and, and you see that, well, you used to see that, but now the NCAA is not, I don't think, as, as powerful as it once was, but they used to clean house. I mean, yeah. you, you look at, uh, you know, we've seen that 30 for 30 on SMU. I mean, they cleaned house. Everybody had to go. I don't know if you huh. can reinvent your culture with the same people in place. That's the, that's the <laughs> thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I just don't think you can, you can do that. Um, because even my thing is, even if Cal had not left UMass and had not left Memphis, kind of when he did, it was it was a guys to go situation. Even though I don't think he was culpable in those situations, that's still a gotta go. You know, for for him, he kind of moved on to a better area, but he could not. I don't think he could have stayed at Memphis with the Rose situation hanging over his head. I don't think that would have worked. There's the optics to it. Whereas what you have in North Carolina, uh, you know, they've, some of the academic folks have, have lost their job, but, but nobody really of note. That's, the, that's kind of where we are, and that's what's going on in Louisville. Uh, Patino is not going anywhere. Uh, the scapegoat is going to be Andre McGee since he's gone. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Uh, but I think if you're involved in something like it's it's a gots to go. That's just how it is. Absolutely. And speaking of SMU, Craig James followed me on Twitter back in the football season. I thought that was just crazy. 
I mean, I was like, wow, you know, which I'm not like you. I still don't have just oodles of crazy math followers. I'm getting there, but, you know, we we see how we saw him at SMU, saw him, unfortunately, for him with the Patriots when they got just throttled by the Bears. But I was like, wow, Craig James is following me on Twitter. I just thought that was, that was pretty neat. But uh, <laughs> speaking of Derrick Rose, you mentioned Derrick Rose, too. We'll be talking about him in a little bit because he's in the news, you know, as we move closer towards tomorrow night. Um, one other UK note, Charles Matthews transfers to Michigan. Uh, so he will not play. He'll sit out a year and then will be part of the Wolverines, you know, roster and playing for Coach John Beeline. So we um, knew Marcus Lee was leaving, knew Charles Matthews was leaving. Now both of them have found destinations. Yeah, and and I, he with with Matthews leaving, uh, I, I can understand Lee, but I always I thought uh, the Charles Matthews and the glimpses that we saw, uh, I thought he was working himself toward the end of the season as one of those guys that 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 uh, Cal can trust. You know, we talk about and uh, we will talk about uh, Cal guys in the draft this year, and, of course, those those top talented guys. But Cal's best teams are those teams that have those guys he can just put in. I think Dominique Hawkins, uh, I have called him the Swiss Army man because whatever Cal needs, if, if he's got a, one of his quote-unquote studs that's struggling, uh, he can ask Dominique Hawkins to go in, play defense, run the offense, whatever. And I thought Matthews could have been that guy. Uh, but, you know, I wish him well. Uh, you know, um, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Sometimes that happens. But, uh, you know, wish him and, and Lee the best. Um, you know, except when they're playing Kentucky, I'll be, I'll be cheering for those guys the same way uh, I did for uh, Wiltshire at uh, Gonzaga. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and we talked about Louisville, talked about Patino. Um, previously, Cal had, you know, whether asked specifically or directly or not, you know, talked about how coaches should kind of know what's going on at their respective campuses. Rick Patino responds and, you know, says Cal should mind his own business and if they cross paths this summer, he's going to ask Cal what he's talking about, what he's talking about me, or, you know, are you trying to put my program in your mouth, trying to have our name in that kind of thing. So, are the indirect dabs, maybe, maybe not, is there going to be, you know, any more fallout from this? It just tells me that it's the summertime. Uh, you know, we see Cal put UK on everybody's mind in the off seasons before, seen them on PTI in June before. <clears throat> but this time, you know, did Rick really think Cal talked about him? Was Cal really talking about Rick? It's like Cal said he wasn't talking about dude with the other quote. You know, is he poking? Is he needling? Is he trying to, you know, jab a little bit? You know, they don't like each other anyway. And, you know, that's, we already know that. 
and this is just this is just kind of fluff stuff until we get to the fall. To me, uh, you know, I, I think Cal had some, and, and here's the thing: we know Cal is a smart guy, and yeah. he does not have slips of the tongue. He does not have. There's no wasted words when there's a microphone in front of his face. And I don't mean that negatively. I just say he's my coach, but he knows what he's saying. I think he was making a valid point about what coaches should and should not know. The same point he is making is the way the NCAA has ruled when you look at SMU and Larry Brown, when you look at uh, Jim Beheim and Syracuse, even when you look at Coach Cal himself, it's not so much what you did or did not know. It is should you have known what was going on. That is what, what the NCAA is now all about. So he's not saying anything any different than the NCAA has already mandated. Now, by making that point, if he can needle – Patino, is he going to do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as Louisville fans will point out, he can stress not on, you know, what's going on campus because the Marcus Camby situation at UMass and Derrick Rose in Memphis, those situations did not happen on campus. But in the Louisville situation right now, whatever happened, and we know something happened. We've got former Louisville recruits that have said some of these things happened. They happened in a dorm on campus, a dorm built specifically to help isolate and insulate the team from situations like this. That's what is mind-boggling. Minority Hall was built so this kind of stuff did not happen. And and so yeah, I think the coach bears a little bit of responsibility for that. And I mean, no coach is gonna know every 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 single single thing. But when it comes to big stuff, you should know you should know more bigger stuff than you don't know about. If that makes any sense. Or well, it, or have an it, idea uh, when it's some, you know, potentially some some stuff going be problematic and, stuff. You should be clued in more than you're not. Well, and here's the thing too. Uh, I I don't find it a stretch for a coach to say we've got three or four recruits in town. What are we doing with them? I don't think that's a stretch. What's going on? I. I this isn't, you know, guys on the team doing something. I think that the coaching staff and head coach would pay particular amount of attention to recruits because really that's where a lot of these violations happen. You know, recruits on campus, you want to make sure that your current players don't take the recruits to this restaurant and get a free meal. I think there's a little bit more diligence that that should and does go into that than, all right, just have a party. I, I, 
I don't know. I just feel a coach would be a little bit more concerned with recruits on campus. That's me. That's just kind of my mindset. I, I think, I hope that's what goes on, but you never know. Uh, so Cal is making a valid point, but if he can needle Patino, why not? Why not? It's, it's what, eight and one <laughs> since he's been in Lexington? Yeah. Why not? You know, as dismissive of, of Kentucky football as Louisville fans are, and they are very chesty about football. And I understand that it's it's four or five straight. They haven't been particularly close. I get that. Kentucky fans, if you're dismissive of Louisville basketball, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, eight and one. Well, we almost did. Yeah, it was a close game last year, but still, eight and one. Okay, Cal's eight and one. What he's done since he's been in Lexington, he has bested Patino. Yes, the championships are one to one, but Cal with thirty-eight and one additional Final Fours. Uh, we will see tomorrow night more Kentucky guys getting drafted in the first round. So there is a gap between the two programs. Uh, why not get Chesty? The same way I like LeBron and Steph having that beef. I like my coaches, my rival coaches having that beef. I mean, when you look at Florida and Florida State. In those in those 90s, when you got Spurrier and Bobby Bowden on their games with their barbs back and forth, it, it brings something to it. I don't want necessarily want my rival coaches to be the best of buddies. You know, I, I think it adds a lot to it. Do you think Phil Fulmer and uh, Steve Spurrier golfing buddies in the mid 90s? Is that what you think? You, you I mean, you, you think that. I mean that's the, that's the way it goes, and I don't think it's anything uh, unusual. They don't like each other. They're 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 very similar coaches with their personalities, right. and you know if you want to say their superiority complexes. And I, I think to some extent you've got Patino, who I thought uh, my mindset is when he came to Louisville, he thought he could recapture what he had in Lexington, because he himself said Kentucky is Camelot. So now he's seeing Cal come in to and sit in his spot, you know, sit in his office and, 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 and really kind of best his, what he, you know, he's eclipsed what, what Patino did at Kentucky. And look, I understand Patino brought us back from probation, but if Cal adds another championship, I think that moves Patino a little bit down the list. That's just my thing. And and these guys are competitive, so I've got zero problem with with them trading shots back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's – that's all that can happen between now and, and the season, you know. Some yeah, it, verbal stuff, unless, yeah. unless they both – Happened to be in the sidelines at the Peach Jam or one of these, you know, summer uh, AAU meets like the same recruit, and, and then something really tries to pop off, which, which would be rare, you know. But if you know, Rick is going to ask him about it or if there's a little altercation, you know, in a high school gym somewhere, other than that, it's just going to be, you know, through the media quotes, you say this, I say that, blah, blah, blah. But you know, that's all it is. 
Yeah, and, and it, like I said, Kyle knows what he's doing. We are talking about it. ESPN's talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, and, oh, you know, he's going to show up at the draft tomorrow night. Cal knows what he's doing. He's not dumb. I mean, he's, he's not. And it's not necessarily, you know, bad publicity. He's just – he's going to say things that he knows people are going to listen to. Uh, he's got the bully pulpit of Kentucky basketball. It's the same way Nick Saban can make some points as Alabama's coach about college football, they're going to resonate differently than the coach of Utah State. That's just the way it is. Uh, and Cal enjoys the spotlight. I've got zero problem with that. Right, right. Yeah, this is like I said, every, every June or July, Utah's got Cal on talking about Kentucky. This is just, this is just another summer of it, you know. It just happens again. Yeah. Uh, it just happens that tomorrow night's draft. Are you you know you're a big draft guy like watch the draft or you know the first few picks or how does draft night usually go for you? Uh, there's a group of about four or five of us. We get together every draft. We've been doing it uh, five or six years. It, it, uh, basically, well, seven years I guess or six. Years. What since Cal has been there and, and, and Kentucky guys have started to be routinely drafted in the first round. Uh, we get together, we watch it the entire first round and uh, most of the second round. Uh, so we'll, we will do that uh, tomorrow uh, because, again, I've always kind of been a draft guy to watch it, but as Kentucky fans, it's an event because you want to say, okay, where is my guy going or how many of my guys are going? Uh, so it's become an event. Uh, Unfortunately, as a Lakers fan, uh, it has become, okay, who are we going to get uh, with my Lakers having increasingly uh, better picks due to a poor record, uh, which is unusual for Laker Nation to be a a big draft watcher. Well, it's a bit unusual, but I watch. Um, It's going to be interesting to see where Scal ends up, where uh, Jamal Murray goes, obviously, Ulysses. Uh, I think I saw something where San Antonio was very, very high. I think he would be fantastic in uh, San Antonio. If you put him on the floor with the Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, I-, I think he can really be special as that uh, change of pace guy off the bench. I think he can be a better Patty Mills. I honestly believe that. That's and and. and Realistically, when I look at Tyler Ulysses' career, I, I see him as being that, that change of pace guy. I, I, I don't think that's a knock against him. I see him being kind of the leader of that second unit. And yeah. uh, he can end up in San Antonio. Uh, I think that's a great situation uh, for him. Yeah, and, it, and there is not a thing in the world wrong with being like you said, the leader of that second unit, um, Jamal Crawford for the Clippers. How many six-man of the year awards does he <laughs> like? It's like the Jamal Crawford award now, you know? Yeah. Uh, like was it Havlicek back in the day with the Celtics, you know, that, that kind yeah. of made it cool to be a six-man. And now, you know, now it's there's nothing wrong with that. And you, you, you just can make a good living to have a great career. 
in a great situation if, if it ends up with him going to San Antonio. So yeah, that would that would be nice. Yeah, I mean he You're... can he can he can find he can find his niche, and I think he's absolutely. Uh, I mean his basketball IQ is. I mean we we we've talked about it. We've doted on him all season, but the way he sees the floor, there's value in that. And uh, in the situation, I think San Antonio would be the perfect place to go. I still will not root for San Antonio, but I would love to see Tyler <laughs> Hewlett do well. Uh, interesting. And just because, uh, like, I was going to say, just because he was, you know, had to put UK on his shoulders last year, you know, just the way it played out for that season, him alongside Jamal Murray, doesn't mean that he'll be asked to do that or expected to do that in the NBA. So, yeah, leaving a second unit is no way, shape, form, or fashion to knock if that's what he is. No, and, and, and the thing is, when you look at um, what all the guys, uh, uh, Willie Cauley-Stein had an interview I saw a little bit, uh, I read a little bit of his transcript, how – playing at Kentucky gets you ready. You know, you're playing against great players. There's the terminology that Cal uses uh, for his plays and, and during practice. Uh, there's the uh, spotlight of, of, of Kentucky basketball, which, you know, I, I think uh, can't be overstated because a lot, for a lot of guys, you're not going to be hounded in the NBA like you are in Lexington. I'll be honest with you, for chunks of this past season, I forgot about Trey Lyle. Because I'm like, Utah doesn't want to be playing on the moon. I mean, that's honestly. So I think that there's a lot of things playing Kentucky, playing for Kentucky does for you. And Eulis, when you talk, when you hear Cal talk about what Ulis did this year and how much control he gave to Ulis that he did not give to his other great point guards, I think that speaks volumes. You know, he was letting Ulis have more run of the team than MVP Derrick Rose, than all-star uh, uh, John Wall. Then, you know, I mean, so uh, that speaks volumes uh, to me. And uh, I think also – for Jamal Murray, we talked about how he matured and grew over the season. And I think one of the best things Cal does for guys is, okay, you exceeded at X in high school. Well, that's not going to get you where you want to go. And the same way he made uh, worked on Devin Booker attacking on the drive, not just settling on being a jump shooter, I think that improved what he did. Um so those three guys, uh, you know, I think uh, Murray and, and Scal uh, will be in the lottery. I think Eulis will be a steal in the mid to late first round. What I think is going to be the big question mark is uh, Kyle Tucker, formerly of the Courier-Journal, who he has moved on to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to cover SEC sports for them. So definitely want to give him a shout-out. Uh, wrote about Alex Poitras and how he has performed at his pre-draft workout. 
his knee is finally 100%. Uh, what I found surprising was that he has added five to seven inches on his vertical in the last couple of months, which I have not added anything to my vertical in 20 years. So I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, that that's amazing to me. And, and he could end up being a steal. I, I think there will be a team that will roll the dice in the second round on him. We know he's a physical specimen. And I think we can all say if he could ever string it together, you know, he'd be dominant. So I'm rooting for the kid. I really am. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good to hear that is is um knee is continuing to heal. And he's had success in workouts and you know, these these workouts carry weight, you know, right or wrong, fair or not. It's an inexact science. Sometimes workouts carry as much weight as, you know, game film and, you know, watching the kid play actual games, but um, glad that the workouts did go well for Fortress. Um, and so that's just, you know, potentially boosting him and to get his name called or maybe some free agent deal. If, if he doesn't get drafted, he's been able to get up there and, and make some good impressions on some people. Yeah, and, you know, my thing is I'm not going to be like some of these snarky fans, you know, if he has a little bit of success, oh, he should have done it in Lexington. You know, he came, he played well. Uh, you know, I won't forget, you know, he could have left. You know, that's the thing about Poitras. He was very loyal to the program, and I don't think that can be understated. He had the opportunity to leave after that disastrous teen season. Uh, he at least publicly, was okay, you know, moving to the bench in 2014 and helping that team get to, uh, you know, get to the championship game. For my money, he was the missing link in 2015. I could be living on crazy cuckoo land. I think with a healthy Alex Poitras, he's able to do in 2015 what he did in 2014 defensively against Wisconsin. I think we're 40 and 0. So, yes, he did not put up the numbers we kind of thought he would after some of the big games he had as a freshman. But people just do things differently. And if he turns around and has a solid NBA career, more power to him. It's the same kind of situation with Archie Goodwin. I know there's a ton of Kentucky people that are anti Archie Goodwin for whatever reason. He's having a pretty solid career. And you could talk about, you know, he doesn't start and this. Hey, if you make it in the NBA three or four seasons, that's a, that's pretty good because there's a lot of good players that don't make it that long in the NBA. Yeah. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to root these Kentucky guys on, uh, depending on how the draft shakes out. Uh, any given night, you can watch a, a former Kentucky player uh, on TV. I mean, that's, that's just – it's it's not only is it marketing for the program and you know he have to for the young, that just they're Kentucky guys, you know and, that, and how can you not be supportive of Kentucky guys? Exactly, I send it out on our show Twitter page. I just you know just thinking about it and what we're talking about. Uh, I said, who's your favorite NBA team? How many cats are currently on the roster? 
Michael Hoyers is a Celtics fan. Mike M32, and currently one former cat on the roster. Real J underscore Jones is best. This is basketball. Excuse me. The Pelicans and a T Wolves fan. And of course, there's one former cat on each of those squads. And she's hoping one of those teams will get Jamal Murray uh, to go with either AD or Carl Towns. So this is just a little fun question to throw out there, you know, for uh, for the show because we're talking about the draft. And I'd like to Chicago. I mean, according to this mock draft I just pulled up, CBSSports.com, <clears throat> it has Tyler Eulis at 36 to the Milwaukee Bucks. Still talking about this hip issue that his, his dad has been quoted on record saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He's going to have surgery. Uh, you think I would know if my son needed hip surgery or not. Um, but they got him currently going to Milwaukee at 36. With all this stuff that the Bulls are doing, you know, probably going to lose Noah. Uh, Derrick Rose just got traded to the Knicks. I'm not saying that they would, you know, bring Tyler Hughes back home. And, uh, they're not going to pick him 14. Their next pick is 48. And, you know, most of the thing Hughes will be gone before then. But, you know, just crazy stuff happens on draft night. And it's it just It'll be interesting to see where you go. It'll be interesting to see what Chicago does. They've got themselves into the first round with, you know, these deals they're dropping. And D. Rose, former Chicago native, his, his time in his hometown is now over as he heads to the Big Apple. So sorry, some stuff going down. Well, here's the thing: uh, the Knicks. Look, I, I, Derek Rose. He he's going to join that team of guys with injuries and what could have been, because he was spectacular, yeah. and, and and his yeah. knee injuries uh, are well documented. For me, in my era of injuries, Penny Hardaway, he's the captain of that team of injuries and and what could have should have been. Um, I I, I don't know. I think the Knicks are trying to make a splash, trying to do something. Um, I, I think you only make this kind of move because you're in the East and, and you think there's a way you can kind of sneak in, uh, get back to the playoffs and build things that way. But the problem is the Knicks were dumb for so long that they're, they're still hamstrung by decisions Isaiah Thomas made years ago as far as draft picks and and, and, and money allocated to, to this, that, and the other. So I don't know, even if Derrick Rose returns to 70% with, with him and an aging mellow, how does that work? Uh, yeah. And, I, and um, I, I, don't think it, it, I don't think it does, even with Porzingis in the, in the picture. I, I just don't see that working long term. Yeah. And uh, just a reminder, Anything that might go past 8 o'clock can be uh, accessed on the podcast, blogtalkradio.com, slash cats talk. Uh, you can catch every episode we've ever done on there, as well as uh, any overtime portion on this one. The, the Knicks with this move remind me, <laughs> sadly, regrettably, of my own Dallas Cowboys, because 
you know, the mid 2000s, early 2000s, uh, more I guess more mid 2000s. It's just a it's a day late, dollar short move, like you said, with with Rose not being what he once was. He's not the same dude that won the MVP. <laughs> same thing. My Cowboys once had Drew Bledsoe and Eddie George, but neither were in their prime. You know, the name sounded good. You think, oh yeah, oh, because it was still a big name. But the production had fallen off, and this is kind of what, like you said, the the Knicks are doing with this. Oh, Derrick Rose, but you know he hasn't well, been Derrick Rose for several years. Well, the Knicks did that. Do you, I mean, you look at what they've done, bringing in, you know, they brought in Penny Hardaway and Steve Francis, and they brought these guys in that were names just like Daniel Snyder uh, for the Redskins, Bruce Smith, an aging Dion. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's not, it's not Madden. It's not, you know, NBA 2K. <laughs> that's not how you assemble a, a roster. Here's the problem with, with revenue sharing and with all this, when you look at the Knicks, they don't have to make smart decisions. They don't. Number one, people are always going to talk about the Knicks, even if they're talking about how bad they are. Number two, going to be able to generate Ticket revenue Because nobody's giving up their seats To Madison Square Garden The Knicks are still going to Lead, be up there in merchandise Because New Yorkers are going to buy it The same way with My Lakers There's no in, real incentive for, for, for Junior, other than Not to be ridiculed The money is still going to come into L.A. You know, Spike Lee is still going to be on the sideline In New York Jack Nicholson is going to be on the sideline in L.A. It's not like Milwaukee where you've got to be shrewd with what you're doing to get people to go see the Bucks, and even your Cowboys. Look, Jerry, the Cowboys have been, I'm going to say, terrible. By their standards, this has been a run of 20 years of the Cowboys being terrible. Yet, they've got this fancy new AT&T Stadium because Beautiful. they can bring in revenue. That's, that's what Beautiful. the Cowboys do. That, yeah, and that's the thing. It, you know, if you look at their record versus other teams that have uh, gotten these stadiums, and you say, really? I mean, what, one one playoff win in 20 years? Is that what we're looking at right now? Uh, I think so. So, And I'm not saying that to, to, to berate your yeah, team, because my Niners, you know, my, you, my Niners, <laughs> you know, my, my that Niners. Was controversial. Uh, that was yeah. That was controversial yeah. to win that one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so some of these teams don't have to make the best business decisions simply because even with revenue, they're going to bring money in. It's just that plain and that simple. That's just how, uh, that's just how it is. It's just one of those, you know, the haves and the haves not. Uh, so I don't know what the, the next end game is. Like I said, I think they want to squeeze into the seventh or eighth seed in the playoffs build a little bit of momentum while they try to clear away all these, you know, two decades of just boneheaded mistakes. <laughs> I mean, Amari Stoudemire, they bring in guys past their shelf date. Uh, the one guy they bring in with a little bit of tread left, uh, Carmelo, uh, he's a tough player to build around. 
because of offensively yeah. what he requires to be effective is is not the way the league. You know, Carmelo came along. I want to say about ten years too late. If he comes along in the nineties when things were more ISO, I yeah. I think we have a different perception of what he's doing. But when you look at teams that have had success, you know, since he arrived on the scene, uh, there's there's not so much of that isolation ball anymore. Uh, LeBron, you know, with Kyrie this year and LeBron in Miami, uh, you need a two-prong attack, and you need a superstar that's willing to give up the ball. I have always said the best Lakers team are when Kobe did not have to bring the ball up. With Derek Fisher and Kobe playing off the ball, that's when the championships came. You, you can't really have a superstar dominate the ball like that the way the league is set up right now. Right. And it's, it's weird, the swing and the emphasis and the focus on shooting, how, I mean, you know, you look at those games from the 70s and 80s, when nobody missing open jumpers, you know, and the the high just changed so much to be an athletic, more athleticism, more dunks. You know, everybody blames sports center, everybody blames highlights and all that. And getting away from fundamentals, sometimes they blame AAU. You know, you can you can think of a list of my own of the reasons why. But it's it's funny that it kind of got away from shooting, and now there's this oh the premium on on shooting, and <laughs> that's the odds of the game. Well, and, and Craig touched on this during when we were talking about hockey and how things change and, and, and not really paying attention to those old guys and talking about how the old sticks are different from the new sticks in hockey and we can look at how the changes in basketball from shoes, medical treatment, that kind of thing have changed. I'm not too quick to dismiss some of those guys from the 50s and 60s just because they're older. I mean, if, if you're going to tell me that the physical specimen that Wilt Chamberlain was could not benefit from 21st century medicine, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. I, 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 really? Or Oscar Robinson, oh, he's overrated. They play – I mean, here's the thing. You think that things haven't advanced. You go play basketball in a player, pair of Chuck Taylors. Go. Play, play ball in, the, in Chuck Taylors, okay, in, with the, that thick sole, and, and play in a, in, a, in. I'm not saying get you know a pair of LeBrons, but get basketball shoes now. It's a it's, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to totally dismiss those old guys, you know things have changed. You know eras change. Uh, the focus of of, uh, of teams are different as well. So. Um, but like I say, things progress. Shooting, I think, has always been a premium, but we're we're getting better shooters. I think that's just the and and it it comes in waves when you when you yeah. look at basketball. The '80s, we had a lot of great shooters, mm-hmm. and then the three point the three point. Because if you look at some of those old games, those guys with those set jump shots, they were they were oh. very accurate. Yeah. So the three-point line, and now everybody thinks they can shoot. Everybody thinks they can shoot from distance. 
and it skews shooting a little bit. Now we're getting back to where now it is in vogue to, to have that mid-range game, and, and guys are working on that shot again. I don't think it's got anything to do with the quality of the players. I, I just think it's how the game is set up. You know, the defensive now, they shut down the paint and they push you off the line. That's why guys are taking the mid-range jump shot. That's the shot that's available, to be honest with you. You know, and in the 90s, uh, that in the nineties you had that it was it was so physical, you know, uh, clutching and grabbing, hand checking, elbows, two hands to the back when you're trying to back a guy down. <clears throat> you know, that's kind of probably off some of the shooting too. And like you said, there maybe weren't as many great shooters. You know, Alex Houston comes to mind. Um, Dennis Scott, guys like that. And now we've kind of went to the other extreme to where, I mean, the game is nowhere near as physical as it used to be. Uh, for the most part, you got freedom of movement. The guys can cut and do motion and all that. When, you know, in the 90s, it was just, I mean, you, it was just such, so rugged and the offense is just bogged down. Well, and, and the, the coaching styles are different. I mean, and this is what frustrates me with Golden State. This is my get-off-my-lawn moment. But a two-on-one and the shot you get out of it is a three in the corner. To me, that, that just burns my butt. A two or three-on-one, and that's the shot that you get. And, yes, you're going to hit some but I still think your percentage is better if you get a layup in the lane. That's just, that's just me. But so you've got guys shooting these threes. And, and so for me, I'm glad Cleveland won. It's a little bit more conventional basketball. And, and that's my old grumpy man take on that. Um. I, like I said, I had a flip-flop. I would have been glad if Cleveland won last year. I was kind of pulling for Golden State this year because I always pull for history. I, I hate the Patriots, but I wanted them to go 19-0, and and they lost in the Super Bowl. I wanted to see a 73-9 team, you know, finish it out. Um, you know, if you've seen the basketball team, the, the base of the Mariners won 116 games, and they didn't make it to the World Series. Uh, you know, LeBron made history by overcoming three-one deficit, but I was I was pulling history the other way with Golden State. I always pull for history when because you more than likely never see it again. Uh, so we've seen a lot of teams come close, uh, eighteen and 0, 73 and nine, losing game seven. So um, I was hoping Golden State was able to pull it out. I, and I've got family in Cleveland. Got cousins born and raised in Cleveland. Uh, my mom's brother, two of my mom's brothers, have been in Cleveland for I don't know forty years. Moves, you know, up there when they were young in their twenties, been working up there, living up there, about to retire. So you know, got that aspect. I know Steph Curry's aunt, so got a. It was one of those things where you kind of torn. You, you can be happy for both. So I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, my cousins and stuff been up there their whole life. Anthony White, friend of the show, 
is from Twinsburg, Ohio. Twinsburg is a stone's throw away from Cleveland. Cleveland hasn't won anything in his lifetime. He's just a little bit older than we are. So this is his first championship for his city in his life. So I'm happy for Cleveland. I'm happy for their fans. I would have been happy either way. But, you know, like you said, like I said at the beginning, you got to respect what LeBron and the Cavs were able to do. You can't fault them uh, for digging deep and battling all the way back uh, to take the title. Literally take the title. Exactly. Exactly. So it's just. Just one more thing, too, to your point about bigger, stronger, faster. That happens every year, every decade. So, yeah, imagine how much bigger, stronger, and faster Wilt would have been. Uh, as big and as strong as he was, you know, his, his lower body. Matt, you put him on the lower body workout down and what his quads and calves would have been like and how much more explosive he would have been. And we see how explosive he was in his day, in his prime, you know, to take him battling Bill Russell uh, and how swift he could run and the, the stories of him playing tennis and volleyball and all that other stuff he could do besides basketball. So what an athlete he was, and if you got him on some kind of regimen now, it would have been insane. Yeah, you know, people that dismiss those old guys out of hat. I mean, there's that iconic photo from Super Bowl One of Lynn Dawson in the locker room at halftime smoking a cigarette. Are you are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if those guys had done things differently, I mean, so I, yeah, I mean that's 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 something you have to really keep in mind. And that's why I lean when we talk about different eras and all that. I've said it before. I always lean. To, to the old guys, I always, I'm more inclined to lean and give respect to the guys that we didn't even see, the Elgin Baylors and the Connie Hawkins. You know, Connie was, of course, my dad was, was always saying he was Dr. J before Dr. J was Dr. J. You know, so I'm trying to appreciate what we grew up with in our little era of the 90s, watching now with players younger than us, what they're doing. But I still, you can't just sleep on a Jerry West and a Gil Goodrich and a Dave Bean and a Nate Archibald and, you know, uh, Elgin Baylor, you, you know, uh, Walt Bellamy, all those kids. So I, I always I just try to make sure that you just don't totally dismiss them or just push them to the side. You can't do it. Even though we did not see them. You cannot just, just. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I hope that when we don't become prisoners of the moment, and 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 skew things toward, uh, you know, guys in the last ten, fifteen years. You know, we there have been great basketball players for a long time, great football players, obviously great hockey players. So, uh, it's a situation where numbers don't always tell the story. Uh, when you start looking at that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, but you tip your hat to the Cavs, tip your hat to uh, uh, the Penguins on their championships. They they earned it. They did what everybody, every other team before them. They won four games in the championship round. That's all you can say. 
Absolutely. And I will save this one question for next week. It's a Lakers question. I'll try to just write it down and go into next week. That's something to talk about. And didn't mention at the beginning, but we hope to have probably, would you say, the biggest guest we've ever had next Wednesday? We've had some pretty big guests, so this might be the biggest guest ever that we've had on Cat Talk Wednesday coming up next Wednesday? Biggest ever. Bar, bar none. Bar none. Bar none. So let's let's get some confirmation so we can get that word out, but I'm excited. Absolutely. So stay tuned. TV appreciates every single thing, man. Uh, appreciate all the contribution, all the knowledge. Love the NBA talk. You know how we do. We wait for the NBA season to resume. We wait for college basketball to resume. We look forward to football. We're going to make it through the summer and the Olympics time before we know it. I got a Lakers question for you next week after the biggest guest in the history of our show joins us. For my main man, Terry TV, MVP Brown, this is Vinny Hardy. You can listen to Cats Talk Wednesday on the Brown and Hardy Radio Network, blogtalkradio.com. We will see y'all next week. Biggest guest ever. It's going to be fun. Join us next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.